affidavit reveals that Joaquin Mann killed woman as a part of a satanic sacrifice. And thank you for being with us tonight. We do want to warn you, our first story this evening includes some disturbing details. A court affidavit reveals a murdered Deep East Texas woman might have been killed as part of a satanic sacrifice. An arrest warrant was issued Monday for Ethan Kyle Myers for the murder of Sarah Hobson of Joaquin on the day prior. Myers was arrested Monday after 36-year-old Hobson was found dead in her home off of County Road 3635 in Joaquin. That's in Shelby County. KLTV7's Willie Downs has more tonight on what we're learning from the affidavit. Ethan Myers' arrest came after Alan Price and Teresa Louvier made a report to the sheriff's office on November 13th. The pair is saying they had spent the night in the home. That report led deputies to find Sarah Hobson dead in her home. The affidavit states the two claimed, quote, Ethan Myers has done something to Sarah Hobson. They claim they hadn't seen Hobson since the prior day and were concerned for her safety. According to their report, Myers had been acting strange, and before they came to the sheriff's office, they saw him fleeing the residence with blood on himself. Deputies found Hobson dead inside the residence, wrapped up in a carpet. They also noticed carpet cut from the floor in the middle bedroom of the residence. Deputies noticed the door to the bedroom had been freshly painted with a smell of paint in the air. Plastic shopping bags containing paint cans and brushes were found in the room, along with cleaning supplies. Investigators observed white paint on Myers' left pants leg. Investigators believe it was an attempt to hide or destroy evidence. As investigators sought a search warrant, Myers' mother arrived at the sheriff's office, allegedly stating she had recently spoken to Myers, who said he was hiding in the woods and that Hobson, the victim, wanted him to sacrifice her, which he did. The affidavit, also stating Myers' mother, said her son, quote, hears voices and is satanic. Investigators observed numerous mutilations and large wounds to Hobson's head and body. Outside the residence, investigators found a shovel, more plastic bags, a gallon of gas, tools, and a rock matching her trauma wounds. Price also telling investigators Myers had been participating in cult activities. Willie Downs, KLTV 7 News. And Myers' bond is set tonight at one and a quarter million dollars. He is charged with murder and evading arrest. Everybody, you're listening to Midnight Radio. I'm your host, Jerry Adams. Thank you for joining me. Let me go over some of the top stories we're going to go over today. We have some unfortunate news about the death of a toddler. We got the test results back from the autopsy. The toddler died nine months ago. We have more information about the Idaho University murders. We have a murderer brought to justice because of DNA evidence. He was a murderer and a rapist from 1987. Some parents charged with killing a seven-year-old by running him in the dryer. Have Lori Vallow, more an update on her, a Gabby Petito update, and more today on Midnight Radio. If you'd like to call in and leave a voicemail message, you can do that. The phone number is 325-261-0892. Leave up to a three-minute voicemail message at 325-261-0892. 325-261-0892. You can please visit our website where we have articles on there. We only put the best articles up there, articles that we write. 
articles that examine things such as the recent story, article, report about water bees being dangerous and how they will kill your children if you if you give your children water bees. Let you know about the true dangers behind this and what country is behind it. That is midnightrad.io. That is midnightrad.io. If you'd like to email us, that is midnightrad.io101 at gmail.com. Midnightrad.io101 at gmail.com. This happened February 15th of last year. The cause of death for a New York father and his two-year-old son have been determined nine months after they were found dead in their apartment. David Kahn Sr., who died in February, suffered from cardiovascular disease. He had a heart attack in his apartment in New York. And his son subsequently died of starvation. The sheriff said, it is believed that Mr. Cond passed away first and the child was not able to obtain any nourishment after his father passed. The father and son's bodies were found in their Geneva, New York apartment on February 15th. They were last seen alive January 22nd. Officers had been called to Serenity Manor Apartments in February after David Sr. had not been in contact with anyone for over a week. When officers got to the complex, they noticed the door was locked. Officers were forced to break into the apartment after an employee was unable to open the door due to the deadbolt being locked. Though the apartment appeared to be intact, the sheriff said at the time it was cold and the heat was on. The deputies found the father on the bed while his son was found nearby. There was no signs of struggle in the residence. We do not have any reason to believe anybody else was in the apartment when these two passed away. We just honestly do not know what caused their deaths at this time, he added. There were no signs of trauma. This was the statement that he made in February. David Sr. had custody of the toddler for much of his life. He said that the child's mother was not active in his life. Authorities said it was David Sr.'s family who called the police after they hadn't spoken to him in days. According to David Jr.'s obituary, he was born with a medical condition and had just recently learned to walk. Following many surgeries and months of cast and rehabilitation, David Jr. was described as a beautiful baby with curly locks that had a determined smile and a sweet di- and a sweet deposition disposition there's some new new information out about the University of Idaho murders two things in particular authorities are looking for a rambo style knife And also, the police are walking back a statement that they previously made that we talked about yesterday. They talked about how nobody was in danger. They're walking that back after latest developments. 
We do need to be aware. The individual is still out there, right? Uh, we need to be vigilant. We need to uh, watch out for our neighbors. Why has there been such limited information over the past couple of days? I mean, we're almost four days into this. Why has it been so limited? I probably should have been standing here a day or so ago, but I'm here now. Mm. Idaho police walking back the notion the public should not be cautious. Suspects still at large, they don't know who it is after the gruesome murder of four college students. Dan Springer up live again, Moscow, Idaho with more and where we think we are today. Dan, good morning. Yeah, good morning, Bill. That uh, police chief of Moscow finally said what people around here have been feeling ever since those four students were murdered on Sunday, that with the killer of those students still out there on the loose, this community is still in danger. There very much is still a threat to the people here, and they have to be vigilant about their safety. We also now have some video of two of the victims, Madison Mogan and Kaylee Goncavs, at a food truck just hours before they were murdered, and a shocking detail from that news conference. There were two other roommates in the rental house during the murders and they have been cooperating with police the other two roommates were there at the time of the attack all the information that we have from our investigation is that yes they were okay but they were unhurt that is correct Police say there was no sign of forced entry and no evidence of a robbery. Uh, they would not say if the uh, roommates slept through the slangs or were tied up. Uh, nothing else on that. The University of Idaho president also spoke and got choked up talking about the victims. First, my deepest condolences to the families. And friends of Ethan, Kaylee, Zena, and Madison. <clears throat> Excuse me. Their loss has been devastating, and they were bright lights in our community. The autopsies are done. The coroner telling me that it was a homicide for all four victims. They all four were stabbed to death. And, Bill, this is important. The coroner told me it is likely the same weapon was used on all four of the victims, wow. leading to us thinking that this was just one person in that house doing all this mm -hmm. carnage. Bill? Brutal stuff. Dan Springer, more from Idaho as we get the headlines. Also heard reports that maybe it was more than one person, but that was before they were looking for a knife. Rambo style, which is a particular, this one particular kind is called the K bar, which when I was with the Marines, it was very popular. Scott Jute, general manager of Moscow building supply told the Ohio statesman in Wednesday that police had visited the store more than once asking if any K bar brand knives had been sold. They were specifically asking whether or not we carry any K-bar stall knives, which we do not, Jeet said in an interview. The coroner told the news station that the same knife was likely used to kill all four students. And that's what is making the news think no, that it was probably just one person. But the fact that there were roommates that were not killed that were there, maybe they saw somebody run away at the very least. K-bar knives are about six inches long. It's similar to the knife Rambo has. Rambo's knife's a lot bigger. Jute said they have a double blade on one side and a serrated edge on the other. The combat knife was issued by the U.S. Marine Corps in the 1940s.
It was later adopted by the Marines, the Army, the Navy, the Coast Guard, and the underwater demolition teams. They're widely used by survivalists and outdoorsmen. Now, the police, the Moscow police chief, James Fry, said this. Investigators are pursuing every lead and believe it was an isolated target attack based on the evidence of the scene. And that's what they said earlier. Made him say, oh, don't worry about it. The public is safe. And then they said, well, you know, this murderer is still out there, so you should worry about it. And they said that after the sister of one of the victims said, no, every student that is at Moscow right now needs to leave until they get this person. And that is when this police department retracted their their statement about it not being safe. And many of the students there at the University of, of Idaho are leaving and doing online courses. Now, the, it was a sister of, of Kylie Gonclaves. She was one of the four, unfortunately, murdered. She put this specifically on her Twitter. To the students of the University of Idaho that are still staying around campus, leave. Your grades are severely less important than your lives. That was written by Aubrey Gonclaves in an Instagram post. Instagram, I stand corrected. No one is in custody and therefore no one is safe. You guys are not safe until the sicko is found. If the person who did this is capable of killing four innocent people, they're capable of killing more. The last thing I want is to have another family experience what I and my family are experiencing now. Aubrey dismissed online rumors that the students overdosed on drugs and called the accusations extremely hurtful. In a tribute to slain victims, Aubrey vowed to ensure their killers brought to justice. I'm so sorry you guys were taken so young, she wrote. I promise each and every one of you, I will do everything in my power to find you, to help you, and put your mother in prison. Let me reread that again. I completely foobarred that. I'm so sorry you guys were taken so young, she wrote. I promise each and every one of you, I will do everything in my power to help you to help find your murderer, put him in prison to rot for the rest of their life. This person is dangerous and he is not in custody. How police say no threat makes no sense, she wrote. They were fighters and this still happened. No one is safe. Please get your loved ones home. Now, if you look at the video, which we went over yesterday, if you look at the food truck, there's a mystery man who's hanging out with these kids there. He is hanging out with them there, and he's not a part of their group. So he's a person of interest at this time. Now, all these students slain have GoFundMes. I'll put a link so the stories I'm going over in the show notes. So if you want to to donate to their GoFundMe for their funerals, you're more than welcome to. Yesterday they did have a memorial service. Now this next story, this next account I should say, 
is from a 1987 sex assault case. This man was brought to justice based on DNA evidence. It's been 35 years, but tonight a couple of women may have a bit of closure. A rape cold case potentially solved. The man accused of sexually assaulting those women when they were children faced a judge today. 12 News reporter Matt Paddock is live tonight at Washington County Court with new developments in this case. Matt? Yeah, we just received the arrest report from the Rhode Island State Police, which included a list of items that investigators gleaned DNA evidence, which they say matches Frank Theis to the crime. Now, among those items, we had a drinking glass, a fork, and even a blue raffle ticket, all of which were grabbed in September of this year in Indiana. Frank Joseph Theis. 66-year-old Frank Theis of Terre Haute, Indiana, stood before a judge today in South Kingstown, accused of a crime dating back over three decades, arrested and charged with one count of first-degree sexual assault and two counts of first-degree sexual molestation. The details? Disturbing. The two girls were approached by this defendant um, who uh, brandished a knife, um, grabbed one of the girls, the 11-year-old, dragged her into the woods while holding the knife to her throat. For decades, the trial was cold. He told her that he, the 13-year-old, that he would kill the 11-year-old if um, she didn't follow him. He then proceeded to take them into the woods um, where he sexually assaulted them. All that police had was a DNA profile of the offender from a sexual assault kit. There was DNA located um, on one of the girl's clothing. With advancements in DNA technology, police saw a glimmer of hope, and the Special Victims Unit reopened the case in 2019. The Rhode Island State Police recently, through technology, um, had submitted that DNA sample to a company called Identifinders International. From there, they found a match, saying the DNA belonged to someone in Theis's family. But as police dug deeper, they found that Theis, who had no known ties to Rhode Island, was in the state the day prior to the assault, reporting to the Naval Justice School in Newport. And then the final domino fell that led police to an arrest. With the assistance of the Indiana State Police, we're able to get a DNA sample from this defendant, um, which was uh, uh, compared um, and was a match to the, uh, the sample from 1987. Frank Theis pleading not guilty today in court and is being held without bail at this time. Now, he is expected back in court next Wednesday. Reporting live in South Kingstown, Matt Paddock, 12 News. I also want to say this. So it wasn't just his DNA. They found him. They found him because of the DNA of his his family. It was family family DNA. So somebody, I don't know, somebody in his family were trying to search their roots or go to Twenty Three Me or something, and that's how this man got caught. Now at six, we have new information about what led investigators to the Marine now charged in a decades old sexual assault case. He appeared in court earlier today and an arrest report we obtained shows how investigators obtained the DNA evidence against 66 year old Frank Theus. 12 News reporter Matt Paddock picks up our coverage now from South Kingstown. Well, as you just said there, Mike and Shannon, we just received the arrest report from the Rhode Island State Police, which included a list of items that investigators gleaned DNA evidence, which they say matches Frank Theis to this crime. Now, among those items, a drinking glass, a fork, and even a blue raffle ticket. So somebody signs up for, somebody signs up for 23andMe or they sign up for 
Ancestry.com. They do their their kit. They send in their DNA, and their uncle gets arrested, or their father. This is very interesting, isn't it? Where we're at today. But not only that, you have the Mormon Church in Salt Lake City. And I know this because there's somebody in my family that works in a lab there. And they're cataloging, because it's part of their religion, to catalog everybody's DNA. So many of those Ancestry.coms, they work with that Mormon church. This is fascinating, isn't it? I think it... It's wrong on some levels, perhaps. I mean, there are moral implications. What's more sacred than your DNA? Do you personally not own your own DNA, yet anybody can collect it? I mean, regardless of the crime, forget about that. It's uh, I'm a writer, and one of the things that angers me, I'll go legal in an instant if somebody steals my writing, and uses my writing for something else, whether it's an email or whatever. But this is your DNA. This is the very fabric of, of what creates you, and yet anybody can own it. What are the implications of that? But there are good things coming out like this. It makes Does it make you feel safer knowing that if somebody does something like this and they leave their DNA behind, they're going to get caught? It might be years down the road, but they're going to get caught. Because is this going to discourage people from committing crimes? You know, there's there's recent, there's laws about discrimination that, and there's been laws about discrimination, but they've changed, you know, to include LB, let's see, LBGQ, LBGTQ now. And I remember that before that LBGTQ was included in those discrimination laws, they were discriminated against. I remember hearing it and uh, seeing it, observing it. And I marveled at the time. I'm like, the only reason people are doing this is because it's not illegal. Now, there is something to having a protected class of people. There is something to the rule of law that keeps people straight from doing these things. And that's because at the time, the government didn't deem LBGTQ as as real, as legitimate. This was some kind of mental deficiency or whatever, but since it didn't, it didn't exist, it couldn't be considered to be discriminated against you know people made jokes and they did all kinds of stuff just because they could so even though it might be bad for this for this dna to be allowed to be gathered like this i I think there's a lot of good that's coming from it look at and i think it will be a deterrent and uh it makes me wonder you know i i don't wonder i guess i imagine that before race was in that also where people couldn't be discriminated on because of race and national creed and uh, religion. Unless you're Christian, they can discriminate against you if you're Christian. But before that, I bet people did that too and had all kinds of jokes and all kinds of hate just because they could. 
I mean, but before, if you were a bigot, it wasn't against the law. You were just an asshole, right? This next, this next story is heart-wrenching. I'm going to warn you right now. If you have a comment or question about some of the stories we're going over today, you can always call me. Leave me a, up to a three-minute voicemail message. Phone number 325-261-0892. 325-261-0892. Email me at gmail at uh, midnightrad.io101 at gmail.com. Texas parents charged after a seven-year-old foster son found dead in washing machi- machine in July. They were just arrested. Indicted, I should say. Today, court documents reveal new details about seven-year-old Troy Kohler. His body was found inside a washing machine at his spring home back in July. His adoptive parents, Jermaine and Tiffany Thomas, now charged in connection with his death. The complaint death was ruled a homicide. You know, earlier, did I call it a dryer? It wasn't a dryer, it was a washing machine. Can you imagine a washing machine? due to homicidal violence. The autopsy found the complainant had suffered from asphyxiation, possible drowning. The complainant suffered both remote and newborn force trauma that was indicative of inflicted trauma. Jermaine is charged with capital murder and Tiffany is charged with injury to a child by omission. Troy was reported missing on Thursday, July 28th, but investigators say the child never left his home. Officials have surveillance video of Troy playing hide-and-seek by himself in the front yard the day before he was murdered. We spoke to Jermaine Thomas back in July, who says Troy was not inside the home when he got off work. Came home, just like I'm from the walking door right now. I'm from, I don't have my keys, but I put my key in the door and then the door opened. But anything else after that... Investigators also reviewed text messages from the couple's cell phone that described how they were going to kill the little boy because he ate their snacks. She, quote, threatened to put him in the stove and turn it on, end quote. No stress, no mess, just young. Oh, this is hard to go over, isn't it? I'm just about in tears here. To think that somebody put their son in a washing machine, in a they put their son in a washing machine. Can you imagine the horror of being closed in a washing machine, having it turned on while you're in there alive? Oh my God. Because your kid ate your snacks and their kid was hungry. Oh my gosh. The mama was big, too. This is just so wrong on many levels. They were charged with capital murder. Jermaine Thomas, 42, and Tiffany Thomas, 35. They found him dead in a washing machine. According to the court documents, they state that Troy experienced asphyxiation, blunt force trauma, and possible drowning. Authorities also found blood on the washing machine in every, in elsewhere, not everywhere, in elsewhere in the home. It was a top-loading washing machine. 
You see the videos of this, the deputies taking it out of the house. Documents say the parents were upset that Troy ate some of Tiffany Thomas's oatmeal cream and threatened to put the boy in the oven until he confessed and that he ate Jermaine Thomas's donut sticks. Wow, this is an unspeakable crime. Talking about unspeakable crimes, remember, I know you know about Lori Vallow Daybell. Of course, the charges against her and the story that's behind that, I think the best one I heard was Dateline NBC. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. Because uh, you can get that whole story. Matter of fact, let me go ahead and wrap that up. And then I'll tell you about the new news. I would hope. So here we go. The Lori Vallow, Chad Daybell case. And tonight we're hearing from those who were close to the victims as NBC's Dateline unveils never before seen or heard interviews. Our Tristan Lewis spoke with Dateline's Keith Morrison and joins us now with what he said about one of the most watched series in Dateline history. Mark, both Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell remain in custody on murder charges in the deaths of Lori's children, J.J. and Tylee. Daybell, who is also facing a murder charge for his late wife, Tammy, has pleaded not guilty. Vallow's trial is currently on hold after a judge found her not competent to stand trial. She is also facing conspiracy to commit shooting charges in the death of her ex-husband. And Morrison says this new episode shows this case was not something that just happened, but was carefully planned. You will see uh, what's happening as it happens a bird's eye view, a fly on the wall view of this story. As the Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell case continues to capture the nation, new details continue to be released as well. It's like you've got all the materials that nail down things that you can only guess at in previous episodes. Dateline's Keith Morrison says new interviews, text messages, emails, secret recordings, and more reveals the couple's true motivations in a two-hour episode Friday night. You know, to me, it's always the immediacy of text messages that makes the big difference. When you can see someone behaving in real time uh, with intent, then you're much more comfortable about understanding. Some of the materials that have come out in documents are just, like, bizarre. As many try to understand the two minds centered around this case, Morrison says this episode will finally give a voice to those who haven't gotten a chance to speak. The victims. There's the very sad story of Kylie, the daughter, who we finally hear speaking in our program tomorrow night. What she, the, the nonverbal cues that she supplies that we're able to report on are, are heartbreaking. Among those new voices are Lori's ex-husband, Charles's brothers, who speak out for the first time since he was shot and killed by Lori's own brother. That was not self-defense. That was an ambush. Clear to see. Charles would never have walked into a house, grabbed a bat, and hit a man on the back of the head with it. 
While two years may have passed since this case originated, Morrison says the new details discovered continue to be disturbing. Uh, this wasn't a situation that just um, kind of evolved. It, it, it was planned. It was carefully orchestrated. It was one step at a time. Now, a date has not yet been set for Jad Daybell's trial, but the judge ruled it will be in Ada County and is expected to go on for several weeks. So she was recently deemed competent for trial. That just happened yesterday. Again, she was found competent last Tuesday by District Court Judge Stephen Boyce. He ruled an October 6th order pausing Daybell's case. He had been... That's now been lifted. And this case is incredible, the things that these people didn't thought it was okay. An interesting part about this is that they were part of the, not that they were part of the Mormon church, but apparently there was an offset or fundamentalist Mormons. And these two people, Lori Vallow, and Chad Daybell were part of this. And Daybell was a a writer, and he wrote fundamentalist stories regarding this. He sold those online. He was a speaker. I guess you might call him, what do you call it, like a B? You know, like you have B-movie actors. He was a B-level speaker. And he'd speak to anybody, and he would. he spoke to her on her podcast that she had about this fundamentalist um, Latter-day Saint movement that they were part of. And man, they, they believed in some colorful things and they talked about it on the podcast. So when they were arrested and the news of the story started leaking out, all these videos of them talking about this stuff online emerged. And there's something about the interaction of social media. If you have one of these social media people, and they become murderers or involved even in a murder investigation. It has a virality to it. And she said that her children had demons in them, and that's why they were murdered. So there's an update. She's continuing right there, and uh, she's confident she's going to stand trial. Not crazy here. Gabby Petito's family was recently awarded $3 million because they they were suing Brian Laundrie's parents for the wrongful death. Here's more on that right now. This just brings to a conclusion one chapter of what is going on. One chapter may be closed, but the grief felt by Gabby Petito's family remains as immeasurable as ever. Their beautiful daughter was taken from them. Uh, not only that, they were denied the right to face uh, the, the person who murdered their daughter. That person was Brian Laundry, Gabby's boyfriend, who investigators say admitted in a notebook to killing her during their cross-country trip in 2021. Weeks later, Laundry took his own life in Myakahatchee Creek Park near his parents' home in Sarasota County. Gabby's parents filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Laundry's estate. The two sides recently agreed to a $3 million settlement. Petito family attorney Patrick Riley tells us that's an arbitrary amount far greater than what Laundry's estate would likely include, but it allows Gabby's family to move forward. There's no amount of money that could compensate them for the loss of their daughter. 
And whatever monies they do receive will go to the Gabby Petito Foundation. But this settlement does not impact a second lawsuit filed by Gabby's parents, accusing the laundries of intentional infliction of emotional distress. They say Brian's parents weren't forthcoming with investigators and released public statements contrary to what they knew. Tampa attorney Anthony Rickman, who's not involved in this case but has followed it closely, explained how that lawsuit is different. Proactive step releasing to the press through their attorney that they hoped Gabby would be returned safely, knowing that she was already killed by their son. That's what creates the cause of action in that case. The Laundries deny those allegations. In response to the settlement announced Thursday, their attorney told Fox 13, quote, hopefully this brings some closure to this one chapter of this tragedy. And I look forward to working with Pat Riley to resolve the litigation pending against Chris and Roberta. For now, Riley says Gabby's parents are focused on helping others through the charity they named after her to help victims of domestic violence and assist in missing persons cases like hers. They'd like to make that turn that tragedy, if they can, in some form into something good. They don't want anyone to have to go through uh, what Gabby went through when the signs are there. Yeah, and Gabby's family also filed a $50 million lawsuit earlier this month against the Moab Police Department in Utah. They accuse officers there of negligence when they responded to a domestic violence call involving Gabby and Brian days before she was killed. That lawsuit, Cynthia, will also proceed. So they say the money's going to the Gabby Petito Foundation. Let's see what that is. I'm curious. I wonder, T. All right. So I'm looking that up now. Mission statement. The Gabby Petito Foundation is an IRS-registered 501c, sure, organization affected from October 2022-21. Gabby went missing, okay, in her life. The mission of the foundation is to address the needs of organizations that support locating missing persons and to provide aid to organizations that assist victims of domestic violence situations through education, awareness, and prevention strategies. We wish to turn our personal tragedy into a positive. It is our hope that Gabby's foundation will bring these important issues to the forefront of the public eye and to the benefit of all of those communities. Well, this is interesting. On the front page, we are pleased to announce with that with the opening of our new store, we will be able to ship globally to everyone that has shared Gabby's story. Shop now. JDH Iron Design. Let it be keychain. What does JDH mean? And let it be. Polo sweatshirts, hats. Hmm. Seems kind of morbid to me. There's a scholarship. So, that's what's going there. There'll be a link to all this in the show notes. I just got, right before I came on here, I got an update to this story more of a statement from the child's aunt 
And here's a story. Young mother, 27, who is behind on her rent and bills as she struggled with cost of living, took her three-year-old daughter by the hand and walked in front of the train. Miss Redmond, she was 27. She was in court over unpaid bills before her death. She jumped on the tracks. This is in the UK. At Tapla Station with daughter on February 18th. 2019. Now, why is this coming into the news now? She was wrapped in a poncho, walking hand-to-hand with her daughter, who was wearing a little furry parka, jacket with winter hat and gloves, at the station one hour and 12 minutes before their deaths. They have CC footage of it. Sadly, what we can see is that she gathers her daughter up in her arms and jumps carefully from the platform down to what is known as the four the forefoot, and then is struck by the train. The British Transport Police subsequently declared the death suspicious. The court heard Miss Redmond had a bill from her electricity supplier of 334 pounds outstanding, a bill from her gas supplier of 638 pounds she was in rent arrears of one thousand four ninety nine thirty seven. This is horrible. And again, what do we have? We have a single mother. Father not helping. Horrible. And this was 2019, and for some reason they just closed this case yesterday. This is shedding light on the crisis in the UK with heating. And then, again, that was 2019. This is not to even talk about what's going to happen this winter in the UK. And they have variable pricing there too. It's horrible. Horrible story. Now... There's a convicted serial killer. He was behind two beheadings, and he once warned the police that a victim's head, they were looking for a victim. He when you find him, their head will be missing. His name was Gary Hilton. He was convicted of at least three murders throughout the Southeast, including beheadings and accused of several other slayings. He told investigators searching for his final victim that her head will be missing. The years-old case resurfaced earlier this week when the murderers were featured on a segment of HLN's Real Life Nightmare for an episode titled Blood Mountain, The Hunting Ground. Gary Hilton, alleged survivalist, was arrested in Georgia on January 4th, 2018 in connection with the murder of a 20-year-old Meredith Emerson who disappeared three days earlier while hiking in Blood Mountain. told investigators he could direct them to her remains. Her head will be missing. 
I I remember going over this. I've went over the story before. It was chilling and terrifying. And he was basically not he, one of the most psychotic killers I'd ever heard about. But he was basically homeless with his dog, and he lived in this van, and he was traveling around. Yep. I'm reading this right here. Local law enforcement got the word on January 4th that Hilton was at a local convenience store. Officers arrived to Hilton literally trying to clean his van of evidence because he's seeing his photograph in the newspapers. So the woman that he abducted and murdered, well, she had a dog with her, okay? And uh, he liked dogs, so he was going to murder a dog. So he had the dog with him, with his dog in the van, and the lady he murdered, her dog got away, or he let it away, let it go, and it led, because there was also a poster out for this missing dog, it led to his arrest. Law enforcement officers soon linked Hilton to the murders of different women. Of a different woman, 46-year-old Cheryl Dunlap, who said and other remains were believed to have been discovered inside a fire pit in Appalachian National Forest. Dunlap disappeared in December 2007. Her remains were reportedly found two weeks later. You look into his eyes and you could tell that Satan was running his soul. He was allegedly linked to the deaths of a married couple, John and Irene Bryant, ages 80 and 40 respectively, who disappeared while hiking on October 2007 in North Carolina. Their remains have never been located. Police are still investigating Hilton's possible involvement in other cases, such as the 2005 disappearance of 28-year-old Rosanna Milani. Hilton was sentenced to be executed and remains on death row in Florida. And when he is time for him to be put to death, I have no doubt that it's going to be all over the news. This is something else that was kind of left on low profile because this involves a police officer off duty. And it's a female. An off-duty police officer in western New York State shot a woman to death, wounded another woman, and then killed herself during a domestic dispute. The shootings happened shortly before 7 p.m. on Monday at a home in Rochester. Police said police officer Tiffany Gatson of the city of Greece, a Rochester suburb, shot 27-year-old Angeli Soas, Solas, and a second woman and then turned the gun on herself. That's really all there is to it. That's all the police will say. She was pronounced dead at the scene. Police said that Gaston 29 was taken to a hospital where she died. The remaining, the remaining victim was treated at a hospital for gunshot wounds that police said were not life-threatening. They said that the shooting stemmed from a domestic dispute and wouldn't elaborate any farther than that. The police put out a statement and they wanted to express their collective sorrow and grief. The agency would cooperate with the Rochester Department and the State Attorney General's Office for the investigation of the shooting. 
So I'm looking at, here's what I do and here's why I'm doing it. I'm a writer and you'll notice from the last report that I did on the water beads, I go through all these stories that you guys send to me and the ones that I, I research on a daily basis. And I wouldn't do this anyway if I wasn't talking to you. I just decided to let you into my world here. So I go through all these stories till I find something that clicks. And not that all these stories aren't valuable, but the last one that clicked was the water beads. And I have a couple more that clicked. And I'm going to do specials, what I call specials on those. So you get individual episodes about those. And you also get videos on the YouTube page. Uh, Right now... To let you know, I do plan on doing the lives because I shoot those specials live. And uh, there's no reason to not broadcast it other than the fact that I'm having an issue now with my broadcasting software. It's doing an echo. So when I broadcast, is it's echoing. So the last video I put out, it was on the water beach. You can check that out on my Midnight Radio page on YouTube. And there's there's a link to that. If I haven't, you know, I'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes here. So you can check that out. But uh, I had to, I fixed that. I had to fix that after the fact. So what, what I'm actually going to have to do is have our broadcasting engineer look at it. But unfortunately, we got, what, the holiday weekend coming up. So there's a six-day period in that period coming up. Hopefully, I don't know if he has the whole time off. Hopefully not. But hopefully there's a day or two in there that he can go over this this broadcasting computer with me to find out what in their software is uh, doing this. And I'm having problems with, you know, I'm kind of getting sick of this software. I see a lot of people on YouTube, they're using StreamYard. And the one I'm using, you know, it's it's, uh, it's supposed to be able to do more, but I'm sure I'm having more trouble with it when I need it. I can't. So that's why I'm not doing live videos right now, which I'm sure you guys would like. I could be live right now with you. I mean, there's no reason I do it every morning. There's no reason I couldn't flip the switch and go live except for the, you know, the, the audio is not working right right now. I don't know if it's because of Microsoft update or what. Sometimes that happens. If you'd like to call in and leave me a voicemail message by any of these stories you'd like to put in your two cents, I'd like to hear from you. 325-261-0892. We're also live right now on midnightrad.io. That's our website, midnightrad.io. I'm broadcasting audio live. I could do the video too, and I can even do it live straight to my website. I was testing that, and it works fine except for the, the, the audio echoing for no reason. I mean, the audio records fine. It's brought The audio itself is broadcasting fine, but something through that software. But again, that's on the wet, the website, midnightrad.io. I still intend to come up with a rock solid schedule for you guys. If you guys, if you do want to join me live, phone number is 325-261-0892, website midnightrad.io. Email is midnightrad.io101 at gmail.com. Now, this is interesting. It's the ancient fish teeth reveal earliest sign of cooking. Human beings used fire to cook food hundreds and thousands of years earlier than previously thought. An Israeli-led group of researchers have suggested. They found evidence in the 780,000-year-old remains 
780,000-year-old remains of a huge carp-like fish discovered in northern Israel. The scientists noted the transition from eating raw food to eating cooked food had dramatic implications for human, human development and behavior. The previous earliest evidence of cooking dated from about 170,000 B.C. So this 780,000. Are we not almost invading on the dinosaurs? The remains of the 2-meter, that's 6.5-foot fish, were found at the Gersher Bernat Yaqab archaeological site, which spans the River Jordan, about 8.5 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Researchers of Tel Aviv University studied crystals from the enamel of the fish teeth, which were found in large quantities at the site. The way the crystals had expanded was a sign that they had been exposed to direct fire, but at a low temperature. In other words, they were baked. They said that gaining the skill required to cook food marks a significant evolutionary advance as it provided an additional means for making optimal use of available food resources. It's even possible that cooking was not limited to fish, but also included various types of animals and plants. This story will be on the show notes of the podcast. For those that are interested, and here's another story. Declining global sperm count could threaten humankind's survival. A meta-study reveals worrying results. I'm interested in this study because did they check everybody's sperm? Nobody nobody checked mine. The world population hit the 8 billion milestone just yesterday, serving as an incredible indicator of improving human lifespan and, and health. While forecasts predict this rapid growth to slow down, scientists have discovered a concerning factor that, according to the study's authors, could possibly threaten our species with extinction. A new and international study demonstrated that sperm counts among people with testes, not from people without testes, from South and Central America, Asia, and Africa have been drastically dipping at unprecedented levels. This builds upon a 2017 research that had already shown similar results among North American, European, and Australian residents. So that's just North American, European, and Australian is all they checked. This is a reason for alarm because a lower sperm count doesn't just affect the patient's reproductive prowess, but also points to increased risk of testicular cancer, decreased lifespan, and chronic disease. In just the past 46 years, sperm counts have fallen by over 50% worldwide. Now I'm going to go down... Now, there's a link. They don't go over this very much. To um, how they obtain the samples. That's kind of what I'm curious about, where they obtain the samples. And and if you have people paid to give you their sperm, that's, that's something, too. If they're paid for the study, I mean... You would also be looking at a class type issue. Maybe 
maybe it's a class of people that would sell their sperm for five bucks. That's the people that would have a low sperm count. It seems to me like there's be other factors to look at. You've been listening to Midnight Radio. My name is Jerry Adams. If you'd like to call in, leave a voicemail message, 325-261-0892. Email us at midnightrad.io101 at gmail.com. Our website is midnightrad.io. That's Midnight Radio, midnightrad.io. We'll be with you again. I'm going to let you know. God bless and all my best. <laughs>